Amen. Just a couple of weeks ago, one of the more notable figures in the American landscape and the uh, religious landscape of our country passed away, whose name was Billy Graham. Many of you have probably at least seen his, some of his crusades on TV. Have any of you actually seen Billy Graham preach live? Really? I'm actually surprised. I didn't think anybody would. That's great. A dynamic preacher, obviously. He had an incredible ability to break down the gospel very simply and just preach it and just let it fly night after night, preaching to millions upon millions of people. But on the day that he died, I told Bethany that morning, I said, oh, Billy Graham died today. And Nora comes up to me, my four-year-old, and says, who's Billy Graham? And so I pulled up on YouTube uh, an old video, I think, of him in the 50s, black and white, and he's just heralding the gospel as a young man. But one of the things that I find interesting about Billy Graham's life was really his interaction with the presidents of the United States. In fact, Graham had met every president from Truman all the way to Trump. He didn't meet Trump while he was in office. He met Trump, I guess, back in 2013 against one thing that I read. Um, But he had met every single president from Truman all the way to Donald Trump. And so you can imagine, as a preacher of the gospel, heralding it all throughout the country to have met that many people who were at the top of our country, who were leading our nation. And Billy Graham not only had met so many, but he was, the advi- he was an advisor to several of them. And as we look at our passage today, I think we can properly consider Daniel to be some of the, the Billy Graham of Babylon in a couple of ways. The, the first in being that he was the advisor to several of these kings. It's like king after king after king, and there's Daniel just throughout his life interacting with these kings like Billy Graham has done for, had done for so long with the presidents of our own country. Daniel rose up to the upper echelon of the counselors of King Nebuchadnezzar. You remember that happening. He ended up rising up to the the third in the kingdom under Belshazzar just a couple chapters ago. And this morning we're going to see this dear saint rise up under the new king named Darius. And so we have a whole new uh, regime over this area. And Daniel is still one of the top men. Thus far in this great book, Daniel has been a spokesman for God in a pagan land. He has been faithful. He has been committed to living a life that is holy from his boyhood. His life has been watched by the Babylonians. Now it's being watched by the Persians. And they know that the Spirit of God is within him. They know that there is something special about this Daniel that sets him apart from all of the other people who are working within this nation. He had a fantastic testimony before the kings and the queens of Babylon. But there's also a second sense in which I think that he's a little bit like Billy Graham. And that is the fact that they both lived very long lives dedicated to God. Graham died in his 100th year. He was 99 years old. And Daniel, in Daniel chapter 6, is probably in his 90s. To hear of anybody... Serving God into their 90s is a beautiful thing. And it is emblematic of one very clear cornerstone of their life. And that is that they trust in God. They trusted God throughout the entirety of their lives. The the death of a 90-something-year-old Christian is a joyful thing, is it not? 
There's somebody who lived their whole life serving and loving and trusting in God. That is a joy. Whether their name is Billy Graham, whether their name is Daniel, or whether that is you. This person, a person who does that, has finished their course. They have run their race. They have gone all through the way with many trials. And as we have even seen Daniel experience, they have endured. They have persevered. They have trusted. So there's a great obvious power in Daniel's life because he doesn't trust in himself. And that's got to be one of the things as cream rises to the top. That has to, be, has to be one of the clear things about Daniel. Is that Daniel does not trust in himself. Daniel trusts in God. He evidences what is found in the famous verses in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. And He will direct your past. Daniel trusted in the Lord with his whole heart, and the Lord thus directed his past, bringing him glory. And so this is an incredible story of an incredible man with an, an incredible God. But to tee up this passage a little bit, we have to recognize the similarity between this text and a text we looked at, we looked at about a month ago with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's a little bit of deja vu happening within this passage. It's almost like we've seen this movie before, right? There's something within this passage that that we've seen elsewhere, namely in that story of the fiery furnace. So you remember with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it was thou shalt not bow before the... Or, or excuse me, thou shalt bow before the image that was presented before them. Obviously, they they refused to bow down to the image... Therefore, they needed to go off to the torturous furnace, but they were able to come out unscathed. In this passage, it is, Thou shalt not pray to God through any other mediator but King Darius. Daniel refuses, and he continues to pray to his God. He ends up getting thrown into a torturous lion's den, and he comes out unscathed. And so you see the similarity there. Don't do this or do this. They disobey. The punishment is available and ready to them. They experience what at least would have been the punishment, but then they come out of it unscathed. And so we've seen this this movie before with these stories having a similar pattern. But like any good movie, it's worth watching again. So if nothing else, this teaches us that God is sovereign over persecution, but by His grace and the strengthening of His Spirit, we can trust Him. We can trust him. By Daniel 6, things seem to be going pretty well for Daniel. He's endured the several kings. He is under this completely new authority. The Chaldeans were out and the Medes and the Persians were in. Darius is the ruler. And in the first couple of verses, we see that Daniel is one of three presidents that is under this ruler Darius. And he's accountable for 120 or at least some of these satraps, they're called. And one of the responsibilities of these satraps would be to go around the kingdom and to collect tribute and to bring it back to King Darius or Darius. And, and, and it would be Daniel's job to make sure that the tribute came back to the king. But you'll notice that a problem begins for Daniel around <coughs> verse 3. And why don't you look there again with me at Daniel chapter 6, verse 3. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps. Because of an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. 
So you see again that there is a spirit within Daniel that is obvious. It's an excellent spirit. In the previous chapter, it was obvious that the spirit of the holy gods was within him. And he has a fantastic testimony in Babylon. But you notice because of this, Darius wants to set him over the whole kingdom. At the moment, he's in the king's cabinet. He's one of these three presidents to, to be advising the king. But now the king wants to essentially make him the prime minister over the whole region. But the problem comes in for Daniel because these other presidents and the satraps are not going to like the fact that Daniel is going to be set up as the prime minister. And so they have to find something that is going to be able to be pinned against Daniel to bring him down. I liked what one author said. He said, holiness invariably arouses the hostility of unbelievers. Holiness invariably arouses the hostility of unbelievers. You see, the king knew that Daniel was going to be an honorable man. He knew that Daniel was going to do a good job and and be over those satraps and be able to bring all the tribute in and to be honest and forthright about it. But of course, the king couldn't trust others to do that. So although the king could trust Daniel, the other satraps could not be trusted. But also from the perspective of the presidents and satraps, they knew they would be able to find no fault in Daniel. But that didn't mean that they wanted him to be over them. They didn't want him to be ruling over them. It would stop maybe any corruption that they were bringing in. Daniel would sniff that out. He would deal with the corruption. They would no longer maybe be able to skim off some of the tribute for themselves or charge a little more, much like the tax collectors of the New Testament. You see, because of who Daniel was as a child of God, and because of his evident trust and obedience to God, his understanding of the sovereignty of God, he was not captivated by what his world, by what the satraps and presidents of that region were captivated by. And so what captivated them in in money and belongings and things did not captivate Daniel. Although Daniel had spent almost the entirety of his life, certainly the far majority of his life in Babylon, he had somehow remained distinct from Babylon. That's a hard thing to do, isn't it? To, To live in the world, but not to be of the world. Yet Daniel exemplifies this beautifully. Because as a young man, he had decided and determined that he was going to live a holy life. That he was going to be distinct. And so he carries this all the way through to the end of his life here. To be in the world, to be in Babylon, but not to be of Babylon like these presidents and satraps were. So we need to learn this lesson as well. To be like Daniel in the world, but not to be of it. So these satraps and presidents wanted to consume what the world and their great kingdom had. But Daniel knew that it wouldn't satisfy. And so they set out to find something wrong with Daniel. Of course, they couldn't find anything, so they begin to concoct a scenario that they believe is going to do Daniel in. Look with me again at verse 6. When these high officials and, and satraps came by an agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document 
and the injunction. I like what one commentator said. He, he said, It is strangely ironic that the only way they can make Daniel appear immoral is by deceitfully exploiting his morality. So in order to make Daniel look like the bad guy, they had to take some of his morality, something good that he was doing, and twist that and make that wrong to do. To take something good, twist it, and make it wrong to do. The only way that they were going to pin something against Daniel is if they took something good and right that he did and twist it into something wrong. And take a minute and consider the refreshing dilemma that this is. Daniel, although he's a godly man, he's been serving the Lord in Babylon for so long, he's a politician. He's one of the presidents of this region. And though it never seems as though he has to lift himself up or lobby for himself, God just gives him these positions. But he's a politician. He's one of these presidents. He's got to be political. And how refreshing it is that as these satraps and other presidents can't find any dirt on Daniel, so they have to find something and take something good and twist it to incriminate him. What a difference that is from even our own political landscape where there seems to be a compromising video or compromising audio on so many people who have held office. So they appeal to the pride of the king and say, and have it signed into law, that to pray through any other mediator but Darius for 30 days would be wrong. And so Darius isn't setting himself up as a god, but what he's doing was saying that he would be the mediator for a month. That the, the prayers of all the people to whatever gods they would pray, that it would all go through him, and then he would bring them to their God. He would be the priest of the nation, if you will. And so this would last for 30 days. And so the scheme was set. All the presidents and all that they had to do was sit back and watch. You see, they knew that Daniel did something very specific and apparently visible, maybe visible, or maybe they had uh, spies inside Daniel's home to see what he did. But look what he does in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, listen to that, when he knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had previously done. Now this has got to be the biggest, now let's be rational Situation. We saw this with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That there they are before that great statue. They refused to bow down to the great statue because they trusted in God. And for, for them, it, we, we might have thought, well, maybe it would be okay to bow to the statue just for once, just to keep the peace, just so they wouldn't be a problem. But they absolutely refused to bow to the statue because of their love and worship of God. So they refused. But then you have Daniel here, who is praying in the privacy of his own home, in the same way, on his knees, toward the same direction, being Jerusalem, I mean, couldn't he have just maybe sat on his bed? Maybe just kind of do one of those things that we do when we're eating lunch out to dinner. You know, dear Lord, thank you for this day. Amen. And then you start eating. Why didn't he just say, well, we'll just be rational a little bit. We're not going to press the issue. Not going to make this a big deal for 30 days. Couldn't he have just found a closet, laid on his bed? After all, it was only a month. Daniel could go ahead and pray like normal after that. But for now, 
as a 90-year-old man that has experienced enough hardships. Just take a month off. So Daniel knows the law. He knows that if he goes and prays to his God without going through the king, that he is going to be in severe trouble. And he knows that to pray in this way is going to land him in the lion's den. So can't we just be rational? Take a month off, not a big deal. I mean, you can even consider it. If we're, if we're putting ourselves in the shoes of Daniel and we're going to kind of say, okay, well, sh- should we pray or should we not pray? And we're thinking through that in their mind, although we don't see any deliberation from Daniel at all, I know that I would be deliberating and wondering. But Daniel, from his perspective, when you consider the things that Daniel knew, he knew that the time of exile, of being in Babylon, that it was going to end anyway. Daniel knew that the end was in sight. There's a chance that he might even get to go home to Jerusalem. There's a chance he may no longer have to pray toward Jerusalem. There's a a chance that he might actually get to be in Jerusalem. And say, well, how do you know that? How do you know that he knows that the time of the exile is near? Turn over just a page or two to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 2. The first verse says that it's during the first year of King Darius. Daniel chapter 9 verse 2 says this. In the first year of his reign, whose reign? Darius' reign. I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Daniel knows how long he's been in Babylon. And it's been about that amount of time. So from Daniel's perspective... I know that this is almost over. I'm not going to do anything to rock the boat in this moment. I'm just going to kind of ride my time out and get home. But that's not what he does. It's not what he does. Even as modern examples, you think of somebody like Billy Graham, or you think of somebody like R.C. Sproul who died a few months ago, or maybe your grandparents, or maybe your parents who loved and served the Lord. It is, is it not, again, a wonderful blessing to see people serve the Lord late into their life, faithfully obeying and serving Him? I like what Brian Chappell said about Daniel here. He said, age apparently is no barrier to spiritual usefulness. Age is no barrier to spiritual usefulness. You hear it all the time. And we have this discussion within the the, the broader church. We're concerned that young people are leaving the church. I think that we should be concerned about the young people that are leaving the church. But if I'm being honest, I'm just as concerned for the older people that are leaving their churches. Maybe they aren't even physically leaving the church. But they feel as though that somehow their age is a barrier to their usefulness in the body of Christ. Friends, Daniel is old here. None of you are as old as Daniel is here. Again, good chance he's in his 90s. In the beginning of the book, he's that shining example to young people, right? He's just a young guy. He's not going to defile himself. He's going to eat the right food and on and on. He's going to keep himself pure and holy. And we all back up and say, amen. You young people need to learn from the example of Daniel being a young, godly person. And then maybe we see him more of a middle age in Daniel 2 or 4, doing what's right, honoring God, serving. Amen. All you middle-aged people, you need to learn from Daniel. But what about now that he's old? Very old. 90 years old. Do you still plan on serving the Lord when you're 90 years old? If God gives you till 90, do you plan on serving Him 
with those years? Or are the twilight years, later years, are those your years? Let's be honest a little bit. Maybe we can pull back into our own context. And maybe you sit back and you just kind of think and assume that because maybe, maybe the biggest demographic or one of the larger demographics at Windsor Christian Fellowship is maybe between 25 and 40 with kids, and that somehow the ministry here is managed because we've got a bunch of young families. And maybe you're starting to think that, that you're getting to the age where maybe you can kind of hang your boots up, not only from your occupation, but also from your church. Or maybe you're not even there yet, and you're young. But you're thinking, you know what, when I get to a certain age, hanging it all up and just going to kind of go south. I think I have the full backing of God's word when I tell you that that is not what God has for you. The truth is, I don't want to be known as a young church or the young church. I want us to be known as a healthy church. A church of all ages, a church of all kinds of people redeemed by the blood of Jesus, serving together for the cause of Christ. And so if you're an older member of the church here, or attendee of the church here, and I'll leave it up to you, okay? I'll leave it up to you to determine if you're older or not, okay? Because I won't put that on anybody. But we want you here. We need you here. We affirm your giftedness. We realize how vital you are to the ministry of our church. We realize that for so many older people that they have walked through so much. You, you fully raised children all the way to adulthood. You've been through your careers. We need your help. We need your vision. We need your wisdom. We need your time. We need the wisdom of older men to help out the young fathers and husbands and teenage young men to be raised into men with temptations and struggles and issues that might be specific to men. And we need young men to be humble and to receive that counsel from the older men. We need older women of wisdom, Titus II type ministry, that are going to pour into our young mothers and our young wives and, or single young women or teenagers or whatever the case is. We need the older women to be pouring into them. Friends, don't deprive yourself of the joy of serving the Lord because of your age. And don't deprive us of your wisdom because it may feel like there's some sort of barrier there because of age because none of that quite frankly belongs in the church of Christ if anything we look up to you we honor you and we cry out for your help if the average family has great grandparents and grandparents and parents and children the whole spectrum then so should the body of Christ We are all together as a church family redeemed by Jesus and we all desperately need one another within this church family if we're going to continue to help one another grow. I loved what Sinclair Ferguson had to say about Daniel here in his old age and it applies to all of us here. A servant of God is immortal until his work has been completed. A servant of God is immortal until his work has been completed. But how would this dear senior saint continue? We know that he's at this point of praying. He's going to choose to pray. The words in Daniel 10 are, or Daniel 6 verse 10 are so simple and clear. When Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went home and prayed. Why? Was Daniel a spiritual show-off? 
Was Daniel trying to make some kind of statement? Was he actually incredibly arrogant and disobedient and wanting to do something that would fly in the face of the king? Maybe Daniel was kind of like some of us when we were younger and when we were told to do something, we just wanted to do the exact opposite thing. No. And we know this from verse 10. He hears about the edict and he prays. And what are the words at the end of that verse? Just as he had done before. Daniel was in the habit of prayer. And he wasn't about to stop because of some silly law that had been passed with the specific intent to bring him down. Another author said the existence of his continued testimony was more important than the existence of his life. It it would have been far better for Daniel to experience the pain and ultimate death in the lion's den than to lose his testimony. It was far better for the satraps and presidents and everyone in the kingdom to see Daniel and that he would be continuing in trust and faith in God despite the prospect of being thrown to the lions. Like the Proverbs say, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. And Daniel, in this day of adversity, was certainly not going to succumb to the presidents and satraps and the ridiculous law. And so Daniel goes home, his knees hit the two well-worn spots on the floor where his knees rested three times a day, and he prays to his God. But the thing that I don't want you to do is I don't want you to glorify Daniel and say, wow, how wonderful. I could never do something like that. I could never attain that. I could never be like Daniel. This is the part of the damage that we do sometimes when we come to certain characters in the Bible and no sin is mentioned about this man. And it's like, wow, he's just a super Christian and that we could never be there. Like Brian Chappell says, by making Daniel's trust unrealistic, we rob ourselves of the help we need when reality makes such trust seem impossible. So don't make Daniel's trust seem unrealistic. Like if you were in that situation, that you could never do that. That, that okay, here's the edict. You pray or you, you, you pray through anybody but Darius. And you're going to go in the lines, then most of us would say, okay, well, I'm not praying. I wouldn't be able to have the trust. I wouldn't be able to have the faith that Daniel has. And so often we make Daniel's trust unrealistic. Kind of like we might when we see somebody on TV or an athlete, right? They have this eight-pack and they have the huge biceps and everything and they're huge. And you're like, wow, I, I could never be like that. Well, that's totally unrealistic for the average normal person to look like. But Daniel is not the perfect person. He is not without sin. He is just like you and me. He is broken. He is sinful. He has struggles. He's flawed. He lives in a pagan world and he has temptations just like all of us have. And so he's nothing without the grace of God, just like you and I are nothing without the grace of God. So you say, I could never have the amount of trust Daniel has to knowingly disobey the law and pray, knowing that it will land me in the den filled with lions. No, you never could muster up that in and of yourselves. But just like God gave the Daniel the trust, he can give you the trust as well. He can give you the faith as well. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. So the satraps see Daniel and they run and tell the king this great wrong that Daniel has committed. And you see in verse 13, just what these satraps say. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is, listen, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. 
Now, just about every resource that I looked at as I was preparing for this sermon expressed that the satraps here are showing prejudice. They are showing an actual racial distaste for Daniel by saying, Daniel, this guy from Judah, simply because he's from Judah, he is naturally untrustworthy. So it's anti-Semitic in its nature. To kind of lighten that a little bit, and I like to have fun with a lot of you about this, not being from Maine, and realizing in coming to Maine, two words would be applied to me for the rest of my life, and that is, you are from away. You are from away. You're always going to be from away. And not being from Maine, I couldn't tell you, but there are times when it seems like being from away serves as a little bit of a disadvantage to you at times. For instance, I have an out-of-state number. Nobody wants to pick up my calls because it says 401 instead of 207. But maybe it's true of you that you trust somebody a little less because they're not from around here. And minimally, these satraps and these other presidents are implying about Daniel. Daniel is from away. He's not from here. He's untrustworthy because of that. And although there very well may have been much more, and I'm not implying that against you all, but I'm just saying this about Daniel and the satraps, that it could imply a much deeper thing, a prejudice and even racial racial prejudice against him. And so the king now knows what Daniel has done. He is sad, and this king is laboring all night. He's trying to figure out a way around the edict that he has created, but ultimately he does what he has to do, and he throws Daniel into the den of lions. Look at verse 16. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. So he's fasting. He can't even fall asleep. He is so concerned about what is going on with Daniel. But you've got to imagine from Daniel's perspective, apparently he's having a better night's sleep than the king is having. He's 90 years old. I'd still be, even though I trust God, I'd still be afraid. I don't like looking through the line, at the lines through the glass at the zoo. Well, it's all right. But you know what I mean. It's a difference. It's unbelievable. It's dark. And so you're 90 years old. You're being dropped into the den of lions. This is totally unlike the pictures that they show you in Sunday school when you're a little kid. That it's like this 20-year-old kid being thrown into the lion's den, praying with an angel nearby. No, this is an old guy. He's in this den of lions. His feet hit the ground. He's probably stepping on Crunchy bones from other people that have been thrown in there. Probably smells like a zoo. And not one lion comes to take a bite. And like with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the flames with another angel with them or with Christ with them, there's an angel in the lion's den closing the mouths of the lions, protecting him, comforting him. My friends, God allows difficult things. And He wants hard things to happen to us. So that when it's all over, 
He alone can get the glory and praise. Sometimes people will say something like, oh, well, that was a God thing. That that was a, a God thing. Everything is a God thing. But I understand what they mean by that. They're saying that it's so obvious that that God's hand is just so clearly seen in this certain situation that it's impossible to think that anybody anybody else but God was involved. And the fact that Daniel could be thrown into a den of lions and come out on the other side of the night unscathed is not a testimony necessarily in and of itself to Daniel, although it does exemplify his trust, as we see in this chapter. But it gives us a testimony of Daniel's God, which is exactly what Daniel would have wanted anyway. And what we see in the conclusion of the chapter is not Darius falling down and worshipping Daniel, it's Darius extolling God. Just like Jesus said, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, but glorify you? No. See your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Darius sees the good work of Daniel. Daniel has been a light to all, and the king extols his God. But I wonder, does some of Daniel being dropped into the lion's den... And the den being sealed and the signet being put on the stone. Does that remind you of any other story in the Bible? In just a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Christ who was put into a tomb like Daniel. The stone was sealed. He was presumed forever dead by those who put him there. Thinking that they had a great victory. You can imagine these satraps and these presidents. They must have been overjoyed. They must have been thrilled to think of Daniel. We finally got rid of that guy. That hoity-toity, holier-than-thou guy. He's no longer over us. It's over, right? In the Easter story, the Jews who were seeking to put Jesus to death, they must have rejoiced when they saw Jesus finally get rid of this guy, this rabbi, and put him into a tomb. He is dead, never to be heard from again. His tomb has been sealed by Governor Pilate. Right? Pilate. So dust your hands off. It's finished. But like it would not be the end for Daniel, it would not be the end for Christ. And as vain as Jesus' sealed tomb, it could not hold him. Daniel's lion-fested tomb would not hold him because God would deliver him. What ends up happening in this story is that those who sought to bring Daniel to an end were themselves thrown into the lion's den and they were gobbled up before they even reached the floor of the den along with their families. And we think that's justice. That's the way that it should be. Daniel was innocent. These men were guilty. In the end, God brings about justice. Although we might say, well, why does the families have to go with them too? That's the way they did it. But in the gospel, in the story of Christ and his life and his work for us, it's a bit different, isn't it? In the gospel, we see that Jesus goes to the lion's den, if you will, on behalf of the guilty. He takes the place of the guilty and he willingly goes to the death. And he takes our sin upon him. And he takes our punishment that we deserve for our sins. And then he then turns around and he extends this great gift of salvation to us through faith. So if I could make it a little more parallel. 
It's as though Daniel comes out unscathed and he turns around and sees that they're leading those men into the lion's den. He says, wait. And he holds them back and says, I will die for them. I will die for the guilty. The unjust, the just gives his life for. This is what we have in the gospel. But the last thing I want you to notice and our main point this morning of trusting God is found in verse 23. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Daniel at 90 years old trusted in God. He had faith in God. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 33 says that by faith they stopped the mouths of lions. But the reality is, like one author said, Daniel's whole life is metaphorically spent with a den of lions, yet God protects him. And brothers and sisters, our lives too are spent in a den of lions. The Apostle Peter refers to Satan as a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. And friends, this is not metaphoric. This is actual. This is real for us. The temptations and the struggle with Satan walking around, seeking to do us in, seeking to bring us down, seeking to take away our trust and to eat it, seeking us to leave our Lord. And brothers and sisters, our lives are spent in this way. And we must trust the Lord to guide and to protect us as we seek to serve Him with our entire lives. Let's pray. Lord, we have a good example here. We have a good example of faithfulness to You. And Lord, I pray that we'll look to this example and learn well from it. But Lord, I pray that You'll also help us to look beyond and how it points us to our Lord. Daniel is blameless here. Goes to the death as a blameless person. So did our Lord Jesus. Yet Jesus was not unscathed. He was pierced for our iniquities. He was crushed for us. Stricken. Led to the slaughter for the unjust like us.